So we are very quickly moving towards Easter. Easter's like, what, two, three weeks away. Um, and we find ourselves in the season that we call um, Lent. Lent, as we know, is this time when we, we oftentimes we give up something as we start to focus our attention, our hearts, and our minds um, to, to celebrating Easter a few weeks away from now. Um, and you know, as as we as thinking as as we celebrate Lent, Lent kind of comes as a it's kind of a break in our schedules. We stop, we evaluate, um, we think about where we are at, we lay some things aside um, based on the season that we find ourselves in. Now we're going to be looking this evening at um, a lot of scriptures that come from the Gospel according to Luke. Um, and in the gospel, according to Luke, there's actually something that happens similar to that. There's a, there's a break in the flow of Luke's telling of the message of the gospel. And, and Luke is he's telling the gospel story, he's making his way through it. And then as he gets to chapter 9, as we read the scriptures, 9 and verses 51, there's a kind of a break and there's a change of direction in the way that Luke is communicating the message of the gospel. And um, Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 says this. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke shifts the attention um, of the people who are reading through the stuff that he has written to tell the story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Um, and Luke's gospel from then on kind of almost disproportionately focuses on this journey that Jesus is taking to get to Jerusalem. And in the, in the, the book of Luke, um, the journey actually takes up nine of his 24 chapters. Um, and the story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem begins here in chapter 9 and verses 51. And then it continues all the way to chapter 19 with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. Um, and that story is a story that we're going to be looking at next week when we come together again. So with this break in the gospel story, we are told of Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this dramatic statement signals this new direction um, in Luke's telling of the gospel story. Now for us as, as followers of Jesus, the story of Jesus' life the story of Jesus' death, the story of his resurrection, is actually the absolute center of our practice, of our belief, and it even shapes our worldviews. It's the central event which generated the entire story that makes us come here on a Sunday evening. And the whole Bible, the New Testament, but these events, his life, his death, and his resurrection didn't occur in a vacuum. 
Um, Jesus saw himself fulfilling a larger storyline, a storyline that began in the Old Testament and continued in his life, and Jesus acknowledged that, and he lived it out in those, in those elements. And so this evening, I'd like us to focus on Jesus' prediction of his death, something that I don't know if we often enough think about and how, um, how hard-hitting that is, that Jesus would predict that he was going to die. There's this um, very famous poem that some of you might recognize um, that has been used in many movies. It's actually been used in Independence Day. It was used in the movie Interstellar, um, the movie the Back to School. It actually also inspired musicians and even paintings, um, art as well. And this, this poem was written by, um, does somebody know? Okay, Dylan Thomas. Um, you might not know who, but you, I think you will recognize the words, or some of the words at least. Um, and, and, and this is how the poem goes. Um, he says, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the, delight, the dying of the light. Though wise men at the end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright, their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, Curse, bless, be now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Any of that makes sense? I know the language is kind of weird for modern day times. Um, is it familiar? Have you guys heard some of that before? Okay. So, um, so the story goes, this, this poem was written in 1947. Um, many of us weren't even a thought. Um, I think some of our parents weren't even a thought yet. Um, but this story was written, written by this poet named Dylan Thomas in 1947. But he wrote it for his father who was dying. And he desperately wanted his father to fight against this force that was wanting to take his life. He wanted his father to fight against death. And so he uses the words that are found in the refrain there, do not go gentle into that good night. Don't accept death, is what he's trying to say. He says, rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
to communicate his desires. He says, fight against it. Don't just go along with it. Now, when, when I see how Jesus' disciples responded to Jesus telling them that he was going to die, I think if they had these words, they would have put these words down. Because I think they shared the same sentiment. They did not want Jesus to die. In fact, they would have wanted him to fight against it. They didn't want him to die. Now, when I think about the response of the, of the disciples and the response of other people who were following him, I wonder how I would have responded. Um, if I was one of the disciples, for example, who had followed Jesus around for three years, and then to be told by Jesus himself that he would be dying in the next few days. I wonder how I would have responded. What, what would you, how would you have responded to that kind of news, that kind of message from this person who became so precious to you? But you know, the, the disciples felt this way. They held this sentiment right up until the very end. Because they still hadn't fully understood who Jesus was. They were with him for three years. And, and what it was that was to come was something that they couldn't bring themselves to come to terms with. And so they were wrestling with this acceptance of what Jesus' death and his dying would mean to them. Now, there are three occasions in the Gospel of Luke where Luke records Jesus having predicted his own death. And, and we'll take a few minutes to look at those three scriptures. And here's, here's the first one in, in Luke chapter 9, where Luke records from uh, verse 18. I'll read. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. This is the NIV version. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's the first occasion where Jesus predicts what was going to happen in the days to come. And then there's the second one in Luke chapter 9 as well, verses 43 to 45 where Luke records, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it the second occasion where Jesus predicts his death 
And here's the third one. In Luke chapter 18, from verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Each of these predictions could actually be allowed to kind of stand alone by themselves if we read through them. You know, if you just opened up there and you read that prediction by Jesus, you could unpack that. Um, or you could consider all three of these um, in their respective settings to be part of one longer story. But it may be also helpful to read the three predictions together in the way that we just had as a way of getting the full picture of what it means in the Gospel of Luke for the son of David to be rejected in the words that Luke uses there. Now, in the first prediction of his death and resurrection in Luke's gospel, Jesus stresses that his suffering, his rejection, and ultimate death will be at the hands of the religious elite in Jerusalem. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And these men who get mentioned here are actually the ones who were the decision makers in the Jewish community. They were the shot callers. And Jesus said that it was at the hands of these men that he would experience this rejection. And all of this was going to happen in Jerusalem. Do you have any idea of why Jerusalem is so important? What is it about Jerusalem that it has to happen there? Anybody have any ideas about that? It's because of the temple. It's because the temple is there. The temple is the spot. It is the place that the Jews believe that Yahweh comes and meets with his people. Only there. There were many synagogues around, but Jerusalem, that was the place. And so even up until today, there is something about the mountaintop there in Jerusalem. And the Jews even today are eagerly awaiting for the temple again to be rebuilt because that would be, in their, in their understanding, the only place where you could meet with Yahweh, where Yahweh could tabernacle with his people, where sacrifices could be accepted by Yahweh. So there's something very particular about Jerusalem, and Jesus goes there because of this understanding amongst God's called-out people. So Jesus, he predicts that all of this was going to unfold there in his predictions. And here, as we just read now in this first prediction in Luke's Gospel, it is said there in the immediate context of the question of Jesus' identity. Who do people say that Jesus is, is the verses that gets used there. And that was a question, as we read, that Jesus asked his disciples. 
And Jesus then tells them what his identity means, why it is of such importance. The people, and in particular the religious leaders, would reject him. And his identity meant that those people would reject him. Who he was was the reason that they didn't want him to be around anymore. And this was the first time that the disciples actually confess that Jesus is the Christ. It's the first time that they confess that he is the Messiah. Because as we read through the Gospels, we see that there had been others who had already professed that Jesus is the Messiah. It had been um, confessed by the angels in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. It had been even confessed by demons in Luke chapter 4 verse 41 that Jesus is the Messiah. And then it was even confessed by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 that he is the Messiah. And so the year the disciples confess it for the very first time, even after all of that had happened. And they have come, I think, a long way with Jesus. And their understanding of who he was had grown, but there was still some uncertainty in their minds concerning the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be. You see, there was this Jewish idea in the minds of the people of what the Messiah had to be like. There were certain criteria that the Messiah needed to fulfill. In the minds of the Jews, the Messiah had to be a military figure who would fight the Romans and drive them out of their promised land. Other Jews were expecting a very religious prophet like Moses. And then there was also this expression that the Messiah would need to be a future Jewish king from the line of David. But Jesus didn't fit into any of their ideas of what the Messiah had to be like. And so Jesus tells them, that his role as God's anointed Messiah actually involved suffering and death. And I wonder what this must have meant to the disciples in that moment. Because I think what Jesus was trying to say, trying to communicate, was very different to what the disciples thought that he was trying to say to them. And then Jesus very strictly tells them to not go and tell anyone this. Because proclaiming this truth widely at this particular time would lead to misunderstanding amongst the Jews. Because of the Jews' nationalistic expectations, they had this idea of what the Messiah had to be like. And if the disciples had gone out and told everyone this, at that moment it would have messed up all of Jesus' plans. And it would have made Jesus' ministry a lot more difficult because people were already at that stage 
trying to force Jesus into the role of a political or a military leader according to their own desires. And for them, suffering and death wasn't in that picture. That was a major downer. Because for them, they would be asking this question, how could this leader come with the intention of suffering and dying? Because in their minds, the picture of the Messiah that they had was a picture of victory. It was a picture of power. It was a picture of a return of prosperity to God's people. But the picture that Jesus was painting for them didn't fit what they were expecting or what they demanded. And then in the second prediction in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is far more to the point in how he's describing his death to them, saying only that he will be betrayed into human hands. There seems to be a kind of a progression in the way that Jesus is communicating this. Jesus begins by saying that he would be rejected by the Jewish leadership first and that he would die as a result of that. And then he says that he would be betrayed into human hands. And Jesus, I think, here was talking about the Romans who he would have to face. Because in those days, the Jews weren't allowed to execute anybody without the permission of the Romans who were in control of that entire region. And then in the final prediction in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says that he will be handed over to the Gentiles, be mocked by them, insulted, spat on, flogged, and ultimately killed. It's interesting to note that also in both the Gospel of Mark as well as Matthew, the third prediction in, in Luke chapter 18 summarizes the delivery first into the hands of the religious authorities who then in turn hand Jesus over to the Romans. And that will unpack, no doubt, over Easter weekend. Now notice that when taken together, all three of them, the three stories essentially, essentially come together to paint a larger and I think a clearer picture of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders, is given into human hands, and finally delivered to the political powers that be, who will mock him and insult him. There were crowds amongst those people as well who had been manipulated by the Jewish leaders. And each piece is the part of the fuller picture, I think, of the rejection of the Messiah by all of humankind. In this third prediction in Luke, the claim is made that this rejection is so that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. It continues to amaze me the amount of love that Jesus had for us. Because Jesus, if we think about that first verse we had up there, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem despite the fact that the religious leaders 
were going to reject him and lobby for him to be crucified. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem despite the fact that he knew that the Roman, Gent the Roman Gentiles were going to humiliate him, to spit on him, beat him, and crucify him. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem despite the fact that he knew that he would even be betrayed by one of his own followers. Jesus fully expected that he would be tortured and killed. Yet he spoke of his death, not merely as something that would happen, but as something that must happen. On numerous occasions, as we've seen, Jesus predicted his pending death in Jerusalem, yet he did nothing to prevent it. And that always, that always sits with me. In fact, I think his actions in Jerusalem, the time when he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple with a whip that he had made, the time when he failed to run away from those people who wanted to arrest him, the time when he was having a meal with those who were closest to him and the one who would betray him was right there with him. All of those things seemed to propel him, to push him towards the cross rather than draw him or pull him away from it. And so Jesus believed that his death was necessary to the degree that he wouldn't do anything to derail it from happening. And so to Jesus, his death was necessary because he knew it was his Father's will. To Jesus, his death was necessary because he believed it was his calling to drink the cup of God's judgment and wrath. He believed that his mission as the Son of Man was to serve rather than to be served. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus lay his life down of his own accord, as John says in chapter 10. No one took it from him. And he persevered through all of that for love. And so we know what Jesus laying down his life meant to him, I think. But what does it mean to us? What does it mean to you this evening? And I'll close with this. How much do you appreciate the fact that Jesus did go gently into that good night? And that on your behalf he raged against the dying of the light. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you incarnated yourself, that you placed yourself here amongst us, broken people, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, murderers, that you came from heaven to be with us. 
And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus came and he persevered because you love us so much. And so, Lord, as we even continue for the next two days, as the next few days, as we ourselves journey towards Jerusalem, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, continue to shape us, continue to mold us, so that we can better understand who Jesus is, so that we can recognize who he is. And that we can do all of that because we eagerly desire to have your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.